Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about the top five most important stories for alternative investments right now in the month of June 2022. And joining me today, I have my illustrious co-founder, Jimmy Atkinson here. Jimmy, how are you doing today? Hey, Andy. Doing great. Pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Excellent. And you know, as we were reviewing uh, these five stories that we're going to cover for June, it, it really just occurred to me how fortunate, how blessed I am to even be working in this industry because we're in a, a period of tremendous uh, upheaval, economic uncertainty, you know, all these sorts of uh, kind of bad news, frankly, happening in the financial markets. Uh, but for the alts industry, it just seems like one win after another. And this is coming off a, a couple of incredibly successful years already. What do you think, Jimmy? No, I think uh, I think you're exactly right, Andy. It seems like more and more momentum is gaining for the alternative investments industry. That's kind of what we had our eye on uh, after our success within the opportunity zones industry, right, Andy? We looked to see, well, what's next? What about what about alts at large? What about multifamily uh, more specifically? I think those are two of the niches that we've focused our business on uh, over the past six to 12 months. And I don't know, I think maybe we've been fortunate. We happen to be landing in the right place at the right time. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to what, uh, what will unfold for our businesses moving forward. But, uh, you know, I think that's the general theme of at least the first couple of articles that we're going to point to today is the growth of alts. Yeah. And, and Jimmy, I, th I think this is a case where the structural trends that are favoring alternatives right now are outweighing any of this macro financial news. And so, you know, despite these headwinds, for instance, let's, let's go to the first article now, uh, non-traded REITs are continuing to grab record capital inflows. And again, this was on the heels uh, of an excellent 2021 for the industry. So this is on wealthmanagement.com. And, and by the way, for, for those of us who are, are following the show uh, on a podcasting platform. Uh, this is now a video podcast. So we release the alternative investment podcast simultaneously on video as well as on the audio platforms. So if you're watching this on video, you can kind of follow along with these articles. Uh, but we will also post all of these links in our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. So you can refer to those uh, if you're listening and you like to, to read some of these links. Uh, but right now we are at wealthmanagement.com. And this story is reporting on a recent report from Robert A. Stanger and company about these non-traded REITs. And so last year, the inflows were already a record high of $36.5 billion, with a B, Jimmy, $36.5 billion. Uh, so, you know, I would have thought that last year's inflows would be a, a sort of high water mark for non-traded REITs. I mean, they, they were a record-setting year. 
But you think about, well, we're going into uh, another year where the financial markets uh, hit some turmoil, you know, have, have a, a pretty, you know, uh, significant drawdown. So you might think that all of these other types of products would cool down a little bit, but that hasn't been the case, has it, Jimmy? No, it hasn't. Um, you know, the first paragraph here throws out some really big numbers, the 36.5 billion US dollars raised last year by non-traded REITs. The other interesting thing is this quarter is off to a huge start, $12.2 billion in new capital raised during first quarter. I'm just looking at my screen over here uh, on this side of my desk. And that's already just in Q1 alone of this year, already more capital raised by non-traded REITs than in all of 2020, uh, according to this new data from Robert A. Stanger and company. So I think it's I think it's um, maybe we'll get to this throughout the course of the episode today, Andy, but I think it's a function of, of two larger trends, two larger structural trends. One, the product types are just getting better and they're getting better at marketing to accredited retail investors. And then on the other side, investors, retail and institutional are just probably both a little bit more likely to want to invest in this product type at, at this point in time. Yeah. And, and Jimmy, to your point about the, the product, just the product is just getting better. And so I remember that you and I were, this was a while back, we were on a call with Tony Terezo of the IPA, the Institute of Portfolio Alternatives. And he was, you know, he, he was ahead of the curve talking about NAVREITs and, and how hot they were. Um, and, you know, looking back, he, he was totally right that the, the, the NAVREITs have really driven a lot of the growth, a lot of the inflows in this sector, because, you know, traditionally you think non-traded REIT product, you think this is an illiquid product, but with a NAV REIT, you get a little bit of that liquidity of a publicly traded REIT. So I think that's one of, an example of just a, a structural change uh, in, in this industry that just makes alternatives more appealing for investors. No, I think that's exactly right, Andy. And the article goes to, to point that out here, as I think you're, you're highlighting right now, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing is, with publicly traded REITs, I've heard a lot of uh, advisors and, and investors and, and frankly, even internal industry people sort of off the record question, what's even the point right now with valuations where they are? And I mean, I, I guess maybe that's a rhetorical question because, well, the point is, is that a lot of investors need to uh, get out of the bond market and into something else, right? That they're, they're trying to flee to, to just somewhere to park their money to get some sort of yield. Uh, but, but the premium in valuations with these publicly traded uh, real estate products is just too high. I mean, in my opinion, it's just a better place to be in the private real estate market because even in the even in the private market we've seen cap rates compressed we've seen valuations get frothier and frothier but they are still relatively attractive to the publicly traded real estate products and i think what navreits uh, are trying to be and what, what i think they are frankly is this sweet spot where you get some of the advantages of this non-traded product while also getting a little bit more liquidity than what you typically get in a private real estate fund. So Jimmy, another trend that the wealthmanagement.com article brings up is that really the market penetration of this product type 
is still uh, pretty small right now. So, you know, the article quotes that we might be seeing 30 percent penetration where the adoption rate among financial advisors who utilize these non-traded REITs in client client portfolios is probably only around 30 percent, maybe even a little less than 30 percent. So, Jimmy, if you think about it, you know, things could triple from here, right? If that 30 percent adoption rate was 90 percent, then you could see triple the, the uh, you know, amount of inflows from that capital source. So, you know, it, it's amazing to see how much growth there's been, to think that there may even be uh, huge growth ahead in the next few years as adoption picks up amongst advisors. No, I think that's exactly right, Andy. And it uh, kind of echoes a point that we've been hearing anecdotally over and over again over the past few months, which is a lot of RIAs and other financial advisors really aren't focused on the alts world as much as maybe they should be right now. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of RIAs just kind of like to stay in their lane and, and do traditional type of assets for their clients' portfolios, and they're kind of missing the boat. Um, reminds me of a conversation, Andy, that you and I had uh, with a someone who's inside the DST industry. Uh, he mentioned that there are I think he mentioned there are several hundred thousand uh, licensed advisors in this country, but only about 1,000 of them are actually doing any Delaware statutory trust transactions, DST transactions. And if you think about that, and I know we're talking about non-traded REITs here, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's kind of similar in nature. Just, just think of that huge gap that there is in terms of you know, what is out there and what RIAs are actually putting or other types of financial advisors are actually putting their clients into. Uh, it, it's incredible to think that a lot of these financial experts or financial advisors may oftentimes not really know about these products. Uh, and, and a lot of these products are new and they are growing in popularity. And so a lot of it, I'm not even necessarily blaming the financial advisors or the RIA community on not knowing what's out there. Uh, but just to drive the point home that there is a large gap in knowledge, not just with retail investors, but also their advisor. And I think that gap is going to close a lot over the next one, two, five, ten 10 years. And I think it's just going to further drive the growth of alternative investments. Absolutely. And it, to sort of follow on that thought, Jimmy, uh, you know, Nuveen from this article, again, they're anticipating strong opportunity for growth across RIAs. And, and by the way, when we say that you know, RIAs and a lot of wealth managers and financial advisors, um, I, I think we need to get the word out and you know, we need to grow awareness of these products and the fact that the costs are lower, they are more accessible, they are more transparent. Frankly, they're probably better run, better operated than these types of products were uh, a decade or two ago. But Jimmy, it must be said, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast, any RIA who is listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast is obviously ahead of the curve. So I think this is also a a nice way for wealth managers to sort of stay ahead of the curve and differentiate themselves by being comfortable with a lot of these alternative products that frankly, I think more and more clients are going to be asking for in the years ahead. I think that's right, Andy. And just uh, one more point I'd like to make, and then maybe we can move on to the next article, which is actually related in many ways to the, to the last section of this article. 
uh, is I think you and I were both surprised by how many people who are opting into our alternative investments email newsletter and into our podcast are financial advisors. We we ask users when they when they first sign up, you know, who are you? Are you an individual investor? Are you a product sponsor? Are you a financial advisor, a family office? We've got a few other options in there. And I think uh, early on, we were, we were surprised how many financial advisors were, were opting in with us. And I think that just kind of further drives that point home that it's not just retail investors who, are, who need to learn about these products, but it's, it's they're the advisors who you know, oftentimes will have $100 million or more in assets under management and really have a lot of influence over, uh, or, or they, they have a lot of money I should say that that they have influence over um, the the direction where they get invested in. Really need to kind of catch up to what is new in alts and what type of product types are out there. Yeah, and ultimately, whether you're a self-directed investor like myself or Jimmy, or an RIA or wealth manager, I think we're all facing the same challenges. Right, number one. We want to have a solid portfolio, a solid investment strategy to generate alpha, especially maximizing triple net returns over uh, our investment time horizon. But secondly, we're time limited, right? And so that's a big part of what AltsDB and the show is all about is getting information out there, uh, helping bring awareness. So to, to just kind of cut that factor, Jimmy, that, that um, intimidation factor when we're looking at new products and realizing okay, we know who the trusted sponsors are. We know how this product type works. And it just kind of reduces the friction, whether you're an RIA or an accredited investor to make that first investment. And with that, Jimmy, I'm going to bring up our second link from the Wall Street Journal. Wealthy investors pile into private equity to escape stock volatility. And this is what we were talking about right at the beginning of the show Jimmy is, you know, we've seen stock and bond mutual funds. Uh, they've had outflows of tens of billions of dollars a week this year as the markets uh, have been very dicey. Uh, but meanwhile, private manage, uh, private fund managers, rather, they say that the inflows are increasing this year, which again, it, to me, this is amazing because we're, we're coming off of two years of incredible growth in alts. So, uh, you know, and, and it's funny, Jimmy, I, you know, you, you hear that with alternative investments, you want alts that are going to zig when the stock market zags. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't seem to work out that way. Uh, this time, Jimmy, it seems like it really is different. There really are investors, whether we're talking accredited investors or institutional banks, pension funds, a lot of investors are are breaking up with the bond market, or at least at least trimming down their holdings, and, and rightfully so. Uh, and regardless, they are plowing a lot of that money into alternatives. Yeah, well, bonds are always the ballast when stocks are going down, right? Um, that <laughs> that turns out to not have not been the case over the past few months, though. So you kind of look around and you think, well, where can I hide, right? Where where can I hide? my money. And if I stuff it in my mattress, I'm automatically losing 8% per year to inflation. So maybe that's not a hot idea anymore either. And so then you kind of turn to alts. And actually, Andy, one thing I want to talk with you about and maybe get your take on is the illiquidity premium and what that term means. And you know, for a long time, I think we've kind of been thinking about illiquidity premium 
in terms of, you know, you put your money into an investment product that is not very illiquid. You sometimes it's tied up for six months or a year or, or five years, or even, you know, in the case of a qualified opportunity fund, it's right. 10 years or more. And so in exchange for that, I want, I want a, uh, a, a, a higher return. And now I'm kind of thinking, maybe I want to park my money into an illiquid product because it's illiquid, right? <laughs> because it's not going to change in price and be so volatile. And the, uh, the principals who have uh, say in which assets go into or out of the fund actually have a little bit um, less control over, you know, what gets bought and sold daily. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts there, Andy? Well, Jimmy, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and th- this is a type of risk that I think almost everyone, almost everyone in the whole world. And when I say almost everyone, I'm talking about advisors and wealth managers. I'm talking about retail investors, accredited investors, institutional investors, sponsors, everyone underestimates behavioral risk, right? And especially I tend to underestimate it when I'm looking at the man in the mirror, right? So when you go illiquid, when you invest in a product with a five-year or seven-year or 10-year life cycle, like a QOF, you are mitigating your own behavioral risk. And, and I think uh, you know, if you look at how individual investors tend to trail market returns because you know they tend to buy high and sell low, when you look at the effect that behavior has on actual real world returns, as opposed to the pretty chart of the S and P where it just goes up and up and up over the long term, right? You just you just buy and hold, you're going to do fine. When you look at investors' actual returns, it's significantly lower than just that index, Jimmy. So that's that's because of behavioral risk. That's because of uh, you know, if you, if you could distill it, it's because people buy high and, and sell. Yeah, low. oh, the stock market's been going down for a while. I guess I should get out now, and then. You know, a year later, oh, the stock market's been going up for a while. Time to buy, right? Right. So if you think about the wrapper, just conceptually, mm-hmm. if, if you could buy the S&P with the QOF and just forget all the tax benefits or whatever, just in terms of the life cycle, where you were buying an index fund that was tracking the S&P, but you were locked in for 10 years, that investor would probably outperform another investor who could buy or sell at any point over those 10 years simply because of that behavioral risk mitigation of the 10-year life cycle. So I think there's a little bit of that psychological aspect here. You know, but but I also think Jimmy that in the alternatives world, you know, with some of these assets like like think of multifamily like a stabilized multifamily asset. These are generally stable assets anyway that are, you know, cash flowing on a monthly basis, generating income on a monthly basis and capital gains over the long run. So I also think psychologically, when an investor, you know, ties up, allocates some capital into a private real estate fund, uh, generally, I think in, in some ways you can rest easier, you know, again, depending on that asset type, if it's a stabilized asset that's that's generating income, it's like that apartment building isn't worth 18% less than it was a month ago. Right. Whereas with Mr. Market, with the S&P, you can look up what the S&P is doing compared to a month ago, and it's totally out of your control. Right. I think that's exactly right, Andy. And you see uh, you see your brokerage account at 
TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard, wherever it may be. And, and you've got a lot of red numbers there if you're looking over the trailing 30 days or trailing 60 days. But um, you know your real estate investment across town or across the country, it doesn't really have a number floating over it every single day. You can't turn on CNBC and, and see what that particular building is doing, right? So I, <laughs> I, I know I've shared that story with you a few times, but I, I think it's true, right? I think there is um, some truth to that, uh, that idea that maybe illiquidity may be favorable for the investor who would otherwise be prone to behavioral risk. And I kind of like your idea of having an S&P 500. I guess it's kind of like an interval fund is what you described there, an S&P 500 interval fund. With a, with a very long, a long 10-year yeah. Jimmy. That would, that's an, that would be an interesting product type to introduce. I don't know what we would call it. The, um, the save, uh, save your money from yourself fund or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it, it would have the same uh, expense ratio and same structure as just a normal like SPY yep. type index fund, but you just have to lock your money up for 10 years. Yeah, SPYI with the I standing for illiquid, maybe. Our, our motto can be, you'll thank us later, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. So check out this graph, Jimmy. Uh, if you look at oh, yeah. versus endowments versus individual investors. So individual investors traditionally have just been a smaller capital source for all of these private funds. Uh, but as we know, that is changing, right? So uh, with AltsDB, with uh, OpportunityDB, our, our sister business, our sister site, we work with a lot of these 506C funds who are really bringing the self-directed accredited investor or even an accredited investor with a wealth manager, they're, they're bringing them into the fold by you know creating that demand among individual investors, uh, and, and so frankly, this ecosystem, I, I really would say it, it's only um, really in the last five years, but definitely in the last ten years that it's even been possible, right, Jimmy? Yeah, that's right. It kind of uh, I, I guess when you're talking about direct to retail investors, those types of uh, private offerings that are offered directly to, to retail investors. They've really been only been around for 10 years since uh, the Jobs Act was passed under the Obama administration back in 2012. Uh, that's when Rule 506C of, of Regulation D of the SEC, uh, that's a big alphabet soup there. We'll have some links in the show notes page, but that, that was when that type of SEC exemption was, was first made available. So prior to that, it was really difficult for the everyday Main Street retail investor to participate in uh, private equity type funds, private funds that are being talked about here. And as I think that's why only one to 2% of the estimated $80 trillion held by individual investors is allocated to alternative investments. Because really prior to 10 years ago, you didn't really have much of an option if you were a Main Street type of investor. Certainly, you know these types of funds have been around for for much larger players, pension funds and other institutional investors and very uh, ultra high net worth families or family offices had access to these products, but only within the last 10 years have they really been democratized um, partially by this jobs act. But even then I would say, you know, it takes a few years for something like this to get snowballing. So, you know, I think you're right, Andy, to say really only in the last five years or so and continuously every year since then, it's gotten a little bit better and better. I mean, go back to that Stanger report we were talking about uh, a, a few minutes ago, Andy, how 
you know, the records seem to be getting shattered here over the last few quarters. And I think that's structural, Jimmy, right? Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not just, oh, the, you know, the real estate market's up 1% or 2% this month or the stock market did this or that. These are big macro structural trends. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, big structural trends. But then on top of that, now we also have uh, macroeconomic trends, you know, current market conditions, which are making these products more favorable, which kind of amplifies those structural trends, right? Yeah. And Jimmy, you know, that that brings me to our next article today in our roundup, if I could, these macro trends. So I, I saw in the journal today, oh, was it today or yesterday? I think it was today. I think this was today. I think, you, well, it looks like it was, it was posted last night, but I think you and I both read it just this morning, right? Right. So not a normal, uh, not the normal name you would see on the opinion op-ed editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, President Joe Biden uh, wrote an editorial, an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, my plan for fighting inflation. And I think, you know, whether you love them, uh, hate them, feel neutral, not not too many people feel neutral. Uh, but regardless, I think this is uh, important reading for investors, especially institutional investors and advisors who are trying to keep their finger on the pulse of where things are going in the next 12 months. So this is President Biden's, uh, basically his his three-step plan to fight inflation, Jimmy. So so what did you think? Well, um, truthfully, I read about half of it this morning and then I kind of got tired of it, frankly. Um, <laughs> and I, I, ca- I came back and read it again later today once you told me that we were gonna be talking about it, but I kind of, uh, um, you know, I hate to say, it, I kind of, kind of, kind of thought it was a little bit uh, sleepy <laughs> as I was reading it. Um, what was interesting about it, or not interesting about it, was he—he's more or less just cherry picking stats here and there to to show the country or to show the readers of the Wall Street Journal at least what he's doing to fight inflation and how you know, despite inflation, things are going really good in this country, according to him. I mean, one of them is he's pointing to the job market being the strongest since the post-World War II. You've got that highlighted right now. I see, yeah, you're highlighting the same thing I'm thinking of, Andy. The job market, strongest since the post-World War II era, 8.3 million new jobs, the fastest decline in unemployment on record. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to have that happen when, you know, we shut down our nation's economy for, um, you know, several months or a year or more in, in some locations. Unemployment rate skyrocketed and you know, the number of uh, jobs, you know, plummeted uh, in, what was it, uh, about March, April or so, 2020 through the end of 2020. So yeah, no surprise that we've rebounded since then. And, you know, that's one example of cherry picking. And then the other thing with unemployment numbers, as our listeners and viewers know, I'm sure it's really easy to game the unemployment numbers. I mean, the the, the denominator it is, uh, you know, can be easily gamed. And by that, I mean, it's really the labor participation rate that matters here. And the fact of the matter is the labor participation rate, um, I'm actually pulling up a, a chart at bls.gov right now, Andy, and maybe I'll share this with you so we can put in the show notes later. It hasn't come back up to pre-pandemic levels yet. And actually, even before the pandemic, it had been steadily trending downward for several years. So, you know, we've got a pretty low labor force participation rate uh, if, you, if you compare it over the course of the last uh, one or two decades. But Andy, I don't know, what did you think of the article? Well, yeah, and Jimmy, just one note on the, the labor participation rate. You know, some aspects of that could be a good thing. You know, 
sure. in some ways for different people's lifestyle decisions and family decisions and, and so on and so forth. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is when you look at the big picture right now, there's a huge labor shortage, a huge labor shortage. So the unemployment rate being so low is, is generally good for workers. But then the fact that we have a labor shortage means that a lot of businesses are struggling. They're, they're literally struggling to stay open because they can't find workers at almost any wage. So then when those businesses struggle, uh, the overall economy, then it seems like we're sort of setting the stage for the overall economy to struggle because those individual businesses are struggling. The other thing is, even if the unemployment uh, rate is lower, you also need to look at wages, wage growth, and real wages. Because if, if wage growth is not keeping pace with inflation and, or rent, then that low unemployment rate, which theoretically should help give workers more bargaining power, isn't actually paying off in their bottom line, right? If their costs are, if their living costs are increasing faster than their wages, right? Isn't that some sort of a wage price spiral? Am I remembering uh, <laughs> Econ 201? Uh, you know, but I, I agree with you on the cherry picking, by the way. One yeah. other point of cherry picking here, President Biden uh, refers to the fact that a higher percentage of Americans reported feeling financially comfortable at the end of 2021 than at any time since this, this survey began. Uh, well, we're, we're talking now in June of 2022, and a lot has happened since October 2021, which is <laughs> when this survey occurred. And specifically, inflation has spiked. Right. So th this to me is sort of an odd data point to to refer to the fact that in October of 2021, uh, a lot of Americans reported feeling financially comfortable. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, let's not mention that inflation has totally spiked since then. Oh, so, and, and oh, by the way, the survey only began in 2013 also. So it's not even drawing from 10 years worth of uh, data. But but go, but go on. Andy. Sure. So. So. OK. So I, I think we kind of agree. The, the beginning of this op, and by the way, it's an op-ed, so I'm going to cut President Biden a, a little bit of slack, right? The, the point of this, of an op-ed is not to report the facts in an objective manner, right? He's, he's trying to cheerlead for his plans and his policies. So I think any kind of op-ed like this, you kind of have to take it with a, a big grain of salt. So let's move on to the actual plan here. So President Biden mentions, you know, his plan to fight inflation. First, he mentions the Federal Reserve has the primary responsibility to control inflation. Uh, he references uh, President Trump here and, and how President Trump interacted with the Federal Reserve and basically says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I'm not going to take an adversarial stance with, with the Federal Reserve. Um, second, President Biden says we need to take every practical step we can to make things more affordable for families and he mentions energy, uh, including clean energy tax credits. Um, I'm a little confused by this one, Jimmy. We can we can come back to this. I just want to cover the plan first. But so second, we're taking practical steps to make things more affordable for families. And third, we need to keep reducing the federal deficit, uh, which will help ease price pressures. And again, Jimmy, I, I think you kind of mentioned that rubber band effect of um, unemployment 
I think it is true that the, the federal deficit uh, is decreasing right now, right, year over year, but we're also uh, coming off of two years of lockdowns and just incredible record-setting government spending uh, from COVID-related programs. So uh, why don't we start at the top, Jimmy? W- what are your take on these three points, this plan, and, and specifically, you know, let's take the first point. The Federal Reserve has the primary responsibility to control inflation. Yeah, well, I, I find it interesting that he titles the article "My Plan for Fighting Inflation," but then his first point is, uh, "It's the Fed's job." <laughs> it's basically what he's saying here. Um, so I think by that he's kind of signaling, "Yeah, go ahead and and keep raising um, interest rates to kind of tamp down inflation, and I won't get in your way." So I mean, I don't know. There's not really not a lot of the, not a lot there. of there not a lot of there there. And you know, I, I will yeah. say. I think President Biden and the Fed, they're both in a tight spot and, and we won't Monday morning quarterback who got us into this spot. But, uh, you know, they need to control inflation, but they, they don't want to send the economy into recession. Who knows? We may already be in a recession. I, I mean, I really think that perhaps their most realistic goal is even like a minor recession or, or just sort of a, a mini recession that moderates inflation. Um, kind of a, a Goldilocks situation, right, Jimmy? With, sure, with, sure. with a, yeah. a small recession and medium high inflation, not ultra yep. high inflation. Uh, it, realistically, that may be the best that we can hope for right now. Of course, uh, it's not going to get investors super excited. So let's let's bring that on to the second point. Now, we need practical steps to make things more uh, affordable uh, for families. And, and President Biden talks about, uh, you know, global oil reserves and uh, energy, clean energy tax credits and, uh, that, that he wants Congress to pass. What do you think about this second key part of the plan to fight inflation? Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing that kind of just popped into my head right now is didn't the EU um, just in the last day or two here say that they're going to limit Russian oil exports going forward? Is Indeed, it, I, they did. I think it's, I mean, so that's kind of um, running directly counter to this point, right? I mean, he's, he's saying the price of the pump is elevated in large part because Russian oil, gas, and refining capacity are off the market. Well, now they're even more off the market, right? If, if the EU is not buying Russian exports, I think that's going to just further drive the price up because now we're kind of drawing from a s- smaller pool of, uh, of oil and gas um, exports, right? I mean, we're all kind of fighting for even more limited exports. I, I, maybe I'm not making my point clear, but no, I, I think I'm you saying. are. I think you are, are, are Jimmy. And, and you know, I, uh, President Biden mentions these clean energy tax credits that he's proposed with, you know, the the Build Back Better or, or Green New Deal or whatever you want to call it. You know, talking about manic Mister Market, right? And the uncertainty in the markets right now, I don't think the markets are worried about clean energy investments that may pay off 10 years from now. And I don't think families, frankly, families are worried about, you know, uh, these types of investments right now either, right? And, and I've, invest- I've found this point to be a bit of a head scratcher. Um, he seems to be injecting some environmental climate uh, agenda into a way to fight inflation. I just don't, I don't understand what he's, what this even has anything to do with inflation, quite frankly. And if anything, 
you know, more tax credits is just going to further, you know, skew the market and could could make things worse. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. And, and especially with the energy policy of this administration, uh, I don't think we're going to see a lot more oil production in the United States, or at least certainly not as much as it could potentially be. Uh, so I, I kind of agree. It's a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, thirdly, let's move on. Yeah. President Biden says we need to keep reducing the federal deficit. And again, I, I think that, you know, he's right to point out that the federal deficit is showing a reduction uh, versus, you know, the prior 24 months uh, in 2022. But again, again, a lot of that is a simple rubber band effect from the uh, just incredible spending binge that the federal government went on in the past two years uh, because of COVID. Um, but then he's, he's also talking about, uh, you know, collecting more taxes. I mean, it, it frankly sounds like um, this is sort of a soft sell for Build Back Better and some of the the tax increases that might be backed into, baked in, excuse me, to uh, uh, possibly slimmed down Build Back Better bill that uh, perhaps Joe Manchin could get behind. Um, maybe I can't get past the fact that, uh, or past my thought from, I don't know, number two and number three seem to be uh, kind of running counter to each other here. Who's paying for the clean energy tax credits exactly? Um, and then, but then he's saying we need to reduce the federal deficit. So I'm not really sure where that money's going to come from. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm a little bit confused by the whole thing, quite frankly. Maybe I'm dumb. Um, no, I, I, but- I don't think you're dumb. I, I would just say this, you know, and, and this isn't a political show, the Alternative Investment Podcast, right? We, we are looking at all of this news from an investment standpoint. Um, and, and even aside, Jimmy, from your reaction to this op-ed, uh, I think the larger question for investors is, how is the market going to react, uh, not only to this op-ed, but to the administration's plans? And it, you know, it's, it's beginning to look to me, uh, you know, investors are pricing in possibly a small recession and are pricing in some, you know, maybe slightly moderated, but still higher inflation for another 12 to 24 months. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, most investors or analysts are looking for any sort of quick solutions to some of these problems and specifically the higher inflation. Uh, but also I don't think the market is pricing in any kind of disaster, Jimmy, it looks to me like it's kind of pricing in the, the, the muddling through, we're going to muddle through the next 12 to 24 months. And it might be a little ugly, but we're going to get through to the other side. No, I think that's right, Andy. I think it's pricing in, you know, probably taxes will go up at some point in time. Frankly, I'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen a a tax rate increase um, passed by Congress yet. I I think that's kind of caught everybody by surprise. I would uh, probably guess that uh, most people would have thought we'd have some sort of uh, tax bill passed by the administration by now, but but we haven't yet. But still, I think probably some sort of tax rate increase is on the horizon for for wealthy individuals and for corporations. Um, and I think we're also pricing in, you know, this inflation trend is probably going to be with us for a while. And you know, if if it if there's any way out, it probably is that mild recession that uh, that that you kind of alluded to earlier, Andy. I think that's right. Yeah, and, and so that brings me to, to this next link. This isn't one of our five. This is kind of just a, a bonus article. 
are we are we getting um sponsorship from Tacovis here? We should probably uh have a have a word with them. Yeah, I guess <laughs> uh sponsoring our, our the viewers... show. I, that was that was kind of accidental, but I kind of like it. They got some <laughs> I nice guess our, our viewers must know that uh you know I'm I'm a little bit country, right? You can see my retargeting ads for these cowboy boots. Um but but Jimmy talking about the market's reaction to all of this. Uh, I, I thought it was a little bit humorous. The, the Wall Street Journal on their op-ed page had another op-ed titled Joe Biden's train wreck economy. <laughs> they were right <laughs> next to each other, I think. It was, on, it was on the same uh, page view. So, yeah, you know, again, I, th- I think the market is, is sort of pricing in at this point that we're going to see this sustained higher inflation for some time. We might muddle through. We might see some higher taxes. Uh, let's shift gears uh, to uh, some industry news, Jimmy. Let's shift gears out of macro. Um, and we want to talk about an announcement from the IPA, the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives. So we already mentioned Tony Chereso, uh earlier briefly in this episode, uh, but the IPA Board of uh, Directors has announced Tony Chereso's departure as president and CEO of IPA. Uh, so, Jimmy, I brought up the, the press release here. And so Tony has been at the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives for seven years, uh, according to this release. And uh, they, they use the word bittersweet, a bittersweet mix of emotions uh, as Tony is moving on. Uh, and, and, you know, Jimmy, you and I have interacted quite a bit with Tony, both with AltsDB and, and then you even uh, further back with opportunity db and i have to say uh tony has just been a number one a great person to interact with uh, a great cheerleader for the industry frankly and also just in a lot of sponsors and asset managers that i've talked to everyone that brings up his name does it in a, in a very positive uh and respectful way so this is a guy that's just has a ton of credibility uh, and, and, and frankly, I, I do think that, that he might be missed because the IPA, I think, uh, is really in a strong space right now, um, just as an organization. And I, I think a, a large part of that, a significant part of that has been his leadership there. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Andy. He's, uh, you know, Tony's been great. I've known him for, I think about oh, almost four years now. I mean, he first reached out to me. Um, he was one of the earliest listeners of my other podcast that I do, the Opportunity Zones podcast. And, you know, he reached out to me early on when I first got that going in 2018 and took me out to lunch. He's local here in the DFW area, and I got to know him pretty well over the last few years. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to work with him going forward. Uh, but he's he's got a ton of expertise in the alt space. I, I learned a lot about alternative investments from Tony over the last few years. And he's, he's got a ton of integrity too. He's just a great guy, uh, really sharp guy to, to talk with and, and knows his stuff and does right by people. And um, I'm a little sad he is moving on from IPA. Uh, for, for, the, for our listeners and viewers who don't know, IPA is the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, and they are a huge advocacy group for the alts industry um, and an educational group. And you know their main mission is really to spread awareness of what they term portfolio diversifying instruments or investments. I think is actually how they term it. Um, so you know I would say them along with Adisa uh, are the two biggest trade groups within the alts industry. The two trade groups that 
we at AltsDB look to for direction and leadership all the time, and we attend their events, both Adisa and IPA. And you know, IPA puts on several events per year. Um, you know, we we always like hearing about those and and learn a lot from you know what comes out of those events. Andy, um, any any other thoughts on on Tony moving to to inland from you, or I guess we can talk about inland inland a little bit. Well, it, I, well, and I also want to say he, you know, I think Tony is shown a great leadership and had a great stint at IPA, but I also think, you know, their organization is just a great organization. And if, you know, if you look at their uh, mission, I I think, you know, in some ways it uh, overlaps a little bit, Jimmy, with, uh, you know, what we want to do at AltsDB, which is just, there's all these structural trends, uh, large macro trends that are driving the growth of alternatives and increased transparency and, you know, lowering barriers to the retail investor, but also to advisors and just expanding uh, access as well as education. This is something that IPA does very, very well. Uh, Yeah, their whole mission, sorry to interrupt, their whole mission is basically to close that knowledge gap that we were talking about earlier in today's episode, Andy, that there's this huge knowledge gap and also utilization gap, not just with individual investors, right? But also with financial advisors who you would think would have, you know, a lot more expertise on portfolio diversifying investments, alternatives, if you will. Uh, you know, they, they, this is what this group is all about. They're, they're backed by the largest alternative investment product sponsors in the country. And that's their, that's their main mission is really to get the word out there to investors and their advisors about the value that alts can bring to a client's portfolio. As well as, yeah, they also perform uh, very important advocacy, Jimmy, for right, uh, right. The, the industry. So yeah, you know, I know we have, you know, our listenership, it's it's pretty diverse, Jimmy, but there's really three, three main buckets of listeners at the Alternative Investment Podcast, right? We have self-directed accredited investors. We have financial advisors, including RIAs and other types of wealth managers. But we also have a lot of sponsors and asset managers uh, who listen. And so, you know, if you are a sponsor and you're not a member of the IPA, definitely go to their website, check out their membership page. We'll link it in the show notes uh, here. There's a lot of benefits to being a member. And I also just think it's important, uh, you know, for all of the firms in the industry to work together and advocate for the industry because, you know, these structural trends they benefit all of us in the industry and they also benefit investors. Um, so great stuff going on at IPA. And uh, Tony is moving on here to Inland. Uh, and Jimmy, you're you're a little more familiar with Inland than I am, but I know that they are, you know, they're one of the nation's largest commercial real estate groups. And uh, Tony's going to be the CFO at Inland. Yeah, no, which is which is great. It's great news for him. I know he's probably I haven't actually spoken with him in the last few weeks since this was announced. I hope to speak with him soon, though. But I, I'm sure he's sad about leaving IPA. But I'll I'll bet even more than that, he's he's even more excited about the opportunity to be the CFO for the Inland Group. Uh, Inland, you know, as you mentioned, Andy, one of the largest commercial real estate um, sponsors in the country, and it, all of the big conferences I go to, whether it's IPA or or Adisa. Uh, they're always there and they're not just there. They don't just have a little booth in the corner like I do. They've got like one of the huge <laughs> booths right out front. They've got quite the presence there. They are the largest 
DST sponsor in the country. They, they command more DST market share than any other sponsor. At least I think that was as of 2020. I don't know if I have my 2021 numbers in front of me, but they, they've always been one of the uh, 800 pound gorillas in the room when it comes to commercial real estate development, and especially that DST product type they're leading the way on. Absolutely. So, you know, if you're an advisor or an accredited investor looking into DSTs, uh, definitely check out Inland. And Jimmy, we got one more link today, which is an event that we want to talk about, an event that you are actually going to, the seventh annual real estate family office and private wealth management forum, West. That's uh, right, Andy. Yeah. And I should uh, also mention I'm not just attending, but uh, my other business, our other business, Andy, Opportunity DB is one of the sponsors or media partners, I should say, of this event as well. So just wanted to make sure that was clear. Yeah. And, you know, this event, you know, I looked over the agenda, a lot of interesting sessions with some top of mind, I would say, top of mind topics. Let me pull up the agenda here in my browser. Um, so, you know, we, we first right off the bat, uh, one of the very first sessions, family office structure, direct investing versus joint ventures versus funds. Uh, what are the pros and cons to each of these investment models? So I think that'll be a very interesting session. I, then at, at 1045, uh, alternative asset classes and niche opportunities in real estate. So this is a deep dive into a lot of different real estate sectors, including urban parking, co-working, self-storage. That's a favorite of mine. Uh, vaccine cold storage. Boy, that's pretty timely. Um, so it's funny, Jimmy, because these are, you know, niche opportunities, I guess. But like self-storage, to me, that's just a huge sector now. I, I see it everywhere. Um, so some of these niches have become almost industries in their own right. And then vaccine cold storage is really interesting. I don't think I'd ever come across that one until I saw this agenda, but it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and, and by the way, we had another uh, recent guest of an episode that we just recorded on the alternative investment podcast that that does discuss uh, some of these supply chain real estate segments. So stay tuned if you're a listener for that. That was uh, the episode with CJ Fellini. Is that right, Andy? You got it. You got it. And then one more session I wanted to mention, Jimmy, uh, at, at 11.50 a.m., multifamily strategy, class A versus workforce, the ultimate smackdown, uh, value add versus stabilized, urban versus suburban. I mean, I, I just... I love these sessions that have any kind of versus, you know, it reminds me of, uh, of like a boxing match, but, but honestly, I, I think these are important things to discuss, especially as cap rates have compressed so much, maybe they're easing up just the teensiest little bit, but, uh, these are important decisions when allocating capital. And, and I think it's just great to get, uh, so many smart minds in a room to discuss the appeal and how these different segments compare and contrast, and frankly, which is going to be the better opportunity right now uh, with these different segments. I think that's right, Andy. I think that versus word kind of uh, perks up your ears a little bit. You're expecting to, as you mentioned, kind of uh, see a boxing match or a cage fight or something like that. So <laughs> I, I might have to check that one out. That one looks pretty cool. Why don't you scroll down to after lunch, though, because my favorite one 
coming up, if I may toot my own horn for a minute, is my session on qualified opportunity zones. Oh, there who's I this am. guy? Who's yeah, this guy me. in the blue jacket? Yeah, that's me, founder of Opportunity DB. So I'm speaking on a panel. By the way, let's let's just zoom out a little bit and talk about who this event is really geared for. Um, you know, this the, the the primary recipient of all of this knowledge is really meant to be ultra high net worth advisors, uh, family offices. And let me say, I'm, I'm actually reading from your screen now here, Andy. Um, I, I would say family offices and, and wealth advisors, that last one there are probably like the two primary audiences here. You know, if, you, if you're uh, controlling a lot of capital, how can you allocate that capital? Of course, all of those other players will also be there kind of to help facilitate that capital flow. But those are the two um, big, and I would say along with family foundations and endowments, those are probably the two or three um, biggest capital allocators or, or capital sources that are going to be attending this event. Um, it's all about, you know, just educating them on what types of products are out there, what trends are unfolding uh, within the alternatives industry, specifically within the, the real estate industry. So going back to my segment on OZs for a minute, we're going to be talking about how family offices should be allocating their portfolios to qualified opportunity funds when it might make sense to. And then we're also going to touch on some updates. And the agenda on that page is a little bit behind because I've got the I've got my discussion topic notes here from a prep call we just did last week. But we're going to be talking about the um, the OZ legislation, some market updates, how to do due diligence on opportunity zones, those type of offerings. And, and I will say one more thing, Andy. Um, if we have any listeners or viewers out there, particularly if you're located on the West Coast, close to where this conference is going to be in Southern California, and you're still looking to attend it, potentially, we will have a coupon code available on the show notes page for today's episode at altsdb.com slash podcast. Uh, we got a, we got, a, I think we got a, I forget if it's 10 or 15% off, but if anybody's interested in using that, we'll have a link to that on our show notes page. Yeah. And Jimmy, I should mention, uh, you know, the alternative investment podcast has been growing. So we do have listeners in the thousands now, not, not quite tens of thousands, but in the thousands now. And so we probably have some listeners uh, who are planning to attend. And so I'm going to go ahead and suggest that they flag you down and introduce themselves. Oh, yeah, uh, Please do. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to meet any of our listeners. If, if anybody's going to be there, I'm you know, a few other people I'm looking forward to interacting with Andy, uh, if you don't mind me, is, uh, you know, Jeff Feinstein at Pinnacle Partners. He's on my panel there. I've, I've known him for a really long time in, in the industry, but I've only met him in person once before. So it'd be great to catch up with him. And then uh, Alex Bethal has become uh, somewhat of a friend of mine in the industry over the past couple of years. He's the managing partner at Revoz Capital and Revitate. He's, he's controlling a lot of uh, private family office capital that's been pouring into opportunity zones across, I think about who I want to say like a half dozen or so projects um, nationwide over the last couple of years. And then um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, DJ Van Curen is also going to be at this event. He's uh, the founder of the Family Office Real Estate Institute and Family Office Magazine. And I've actually known him for a very long time online. He was one of my first ever podcast guests on the Opportunity Zones podcast, but I have never met him in person after four years. So I think finally on uh, on Monday, I'll actually get to meet him. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. Excellent, Jimmy. Uh, so hopefully we'll see a few of our listeners there. And with that, uh, I think it's time to wrap things up. 
so for our listeners and viewers, uh, you can always get links to all of the things we discussed, including the articles, as well as some of the other resources at altsdb.com slash podcast. And please do not forget to hit that subscribe button and subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. And we are also on YouTube now with the video version of our podcast. So thanks again, and we will see you next week. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.